Hey, how's it going, Champagne Sharks? Hope everyone's doing well. Just wanted to uh, do some quick house cleaning, let people know. Go to ChampagneSharks.com and you get access to all the links related to Champagne Sharks. You can go there and find it all. And you can find where we are on social media, our products, all that stuff. Also, Patreon benefits, which includes Discord server, book club night, movie night discussions, show notes, newsletter, and most importantly, bonus episodes. So definitely become a patron for $5 a month at patreon.com forward slash champagne sharks. And without further ado, here is the episode. Take care. Hey, how's it going? Uh, Champagne sharks. We have two uh, returning guests and... uh, you know, in the spirit of feminism, I'm going to do ladies first and let Jessica, Jessa introduce herself isn't, first. Isn't that the spirit of the opposite of feminism? Isn't that like a patriarchal... Um, yeah, ladies last. Yeah, ladies last under feminism, I think. Um, uh, I, think I think it depends on which feminism you're going by. So uh, That's uh, which, true. Which TV show, which it's whatever. It's so complicated <laughs> now. <laughs> Uh, yes. Uh, hi, I'm I'm Jessica Crispin. I'm the editor of the Culture We Deserve, and that's enough. You <laughs> can find it on Substack. Yeah. And Chris. Hey, this is Chris. Um, I'm at, I've been on this pod several times. Uh, you know, Escape from Planet podcast. I also have a Substack. I would call myself the editor, but I'm the only person on it. So, so Salary Redemption, go check it out. Uh, you know, it's kind of funny. I. Uh have this thing because I, I hate like not that I mind talking about this stuff but I hate where like a podcast only has me on to talk about like black topics so it's like <laughs> uh, I don't always want to have um, just on to talk about um, something related to um, women's art or feminism but and that wasn't going to be what we're going to talk about at all today but she did a podcast episode with her husband that I thought was so good about Barbie and I was listening to it I just kept thinking of different uh thoughts about it and i'm like oh i still want to talk about it so we're gonna talk a little bit about barbie in the beginning but i don't want to make barbie and feminism uh the whole episode so i'm like setting a little timer in the corner too uh, <laughs> but uh the, the episode was pretty good because it was different than a lot of other things that really get into like the plot minutiae and you kind of um talked about this eternal girlhood uh that happens in in the movie and i so feel you on that because i was um telling somebody as I was watching it because the only reason I watched it was because I, I, I had to know why these white ladies are going so crazy like this is really ridiculous like I've never seen anything like this where Hillary Clinton's even getting involved like I got to see what Margot Robbie and Greta Gerwig did that you know was uh you know worth all this um brouhaha and one thing that really struck me and I watched it when I was watching it I was like wow this is how stupid I've looked for a good portion of my adult life uh because I feel like it's what guys movies have been for the past 20 years but for women like you know basically a glorified toy commercial Mm -hmm. and when i was able to see it made to pander for someone else i was like oh so this is like what any girlfriend or or my wife has felt when i've dragged her to some really stupid um nostalgia thing turned into a movie i'm like this must be what it feels like you know when i um Try to make my mom watch like like a Blade movie or something. Like it's so outrageously juvenile. And I was like, wow, this is what I've looked like. And I feel like, uh, I feel kind of sad that women have kind of fallen to, to our level. Like where they're getting entertained by their own uh, nostalgia bait toy movies that pretend to be, uh, you know, exploring adult themes. Yeah. I, well, the eternal girlhood thing of Barbie. Yeah, I think it's just we have a culture that is, infantilized. We have this sort of sense of arrested development, this sense of no one ever 
actually reaches adulthood. You know, the New York Magazine did that article about why does nobody feel like an adult? I'm 40 years old and why am I, you know, um, and it just is so pervasive in the culture. But the difference is, I think that uh, it's not that women haven't been infantilizing themselves. We have, we definitely absolutely have. It's just that within, you know, when men do it, there's been a sort of um, instant critique of it. Uh, there has been a critique of superhero movies as childish for a very long time, but there's like no, no room for critique within women's media to say, hey, Barbie is is bullshit. Greta Gerwig is an idiot, you know, whatever. Um, like it, it causes an immediate backlash of um, you can't criticize me. This is internalized misogyny. This is patriarchal, blah, blah, blah. Um, and it's just because we've become completely empty headed on um, on everything. But at least on the men's side of things, you have the ability to criticize it and look at it. And, and on the women's side of things, it's um, you, you will get you will get murdered on the street for it. I think I think something that's really true about what you said. Oh, yeah, I'll just finish this point and then I'll pass it to Chris because I hear Chris uh, jumping in. Um, I've noticed even at, what's fair is like when Avengers Endgame didn't get nominated for an Oscar. You didn't really see people crying. Oh, it should have gotten an Oscar. So I think there is some truth to that for sure. But um, when I watched like some leftist like bread tuber types on YouTube critique this movie, one thing I've noticed is even the ones critiquing it they were treading very carefully like on a landmine. Like, like, like they always had to make sure that they said, and don't get me wrong, Barbie's a great movie. And I'm like, when I finally saw, I'm like, no, this is not a great movie. Why are you yeah. all saying this? But they all just say, oh, it's a great movie and it was fun, but the feminism wasn't right. Or it was a great movie and Greta Gerwig's a genius, but, and I, and I finally saw it, I'm like, oh my God, this is, this is idiotic. This is not, uh, so even a lot of the critiques have had this fear to them. And I'm sorry, Chris, you were saying. Oh, I just wanted to say, uh, what Jessa, in response to what Jessa was saying, because a lot of women who defend things like the, you know, the Taylor Swift ideology, whatever you want to call it, they will say, you know, historically men have always attacked things precisely because they were associated with girls and that made them automatically bad. But now it's like it swung the other way where it's automatically good because it's associated with girls. So that's that's the sense I get. Right. But if, you know, if Barbie was actually a movie for girls, I would be... I, I would be less hard on it, but it's not for girls. It's for 30-year-old women, right? It's for 30-year-old women who have um, nostalgia problems, who can't get control of their lives or whatever, whatever their personal psychology is. Um, I did not see any children at my screening. I have never talked to anybody who talked to children who brought their children unless they were in their 20s. Um, so yeah, I, I, it's not a thing for girls. It is a thing for women who want to feel like girls. But people like to say that when it's time to defend the movie. Like people will say, oh, this movie is genius. It just to be an Oscar. It's a meditation on feminism. But if you try to critique it by those standards, then they're like, well, look look at you. You're criticizing a um, movie for kids, you know? And it's like, okay, like make up your mind. But also, I feel like a movie for kids wouldn't have I'm going to beat you off uh, as a running joke, you know what I mean? Like uh, between the Kens, like that is not, it's not even a double entendre that really would go over kids' heads. It's just so in your face. So it's very dishonest, uh, I feel. Uh, something else right, I would, it's, like, it's like a, 
like a retroactive kids movie. You know, I mean, T, you and I, we often talk about how a lot of these movies for minorities is like playing catch up for all the neglect we supposedly felt because we didn't get our 90s style, yeah. uh, you know, Tom Hanks, Meg Ryan, Ron Com. So we got to have that, even though we're like in our 30s, 40s, hell, maybe even 50s now, it, it does seem like it is that it is for like the inner, inner girl. Uh, girl child, not the uh, actual ch- children of today, who probably don't feel as because it's it's like yeah, they their pop culture is not sneered at, and if it is, who cares? Because it's not like boys really have the power to I don't know stop Taylor Swift or or whatever. Yeah, okay. I don't. Yeah, I don't really buy that argument in support of Barbie just because we do. I mean, we have the Little Mermaid. You know, like we've we've had things all along. It's not like women have not been seen in films. It's not like girlhood hasn't been represented in our entertainment or in our culture. It has been. Um, And it's been performed and written and directed by women in the past too. So this thing of like making up for the past, I, I understand like the kind of argument, but I also think that one is is bullshit because if you... If you look back even, you know, 10 years, we had stuff like, I don't know, there, there is this kind of idea that because um, everything happened in the past under the conditions of patriarchy, it's all tainted. So it all has to be sort of redone um, in this specifically like free, liberated way. But the stuff in the past was better. The stuff under oppression was better than what we have now. But I, I don't disagree with you, but could you just name an example? I just want to I just want to get a sense of what you're talking about. Um, well, I mean, everything from half of the Disney movies to um, Peter Rabbit to, you know, uh, the Moomins um, all made by uh, I mean, Moomins and, and Peter Rabbit were made by women, um, you know, half of the great children's writers uh, of the history of the world were women. Um, so yeah, no, I, I just don't think that it that it holds up as an argument. I think a problem too is a lot of the fixes that people try to do to supposedly correct it from, you know, the patriarchal oppression because people have such a narrow definition of what uh, winning for a woman is. A lot of times their fixes actually create worse problems because these people just have a very narrow view of things. And I'll give an example. There was this live action remake by Disney that made it to Disney Plus. What That was um, Peter Pan and Wendy or Wendy and Peter Pan. They might have put Wendy's name first um, this time. And um, the original book was always called Peter Pan and Wendy. Wendy was always a central character. But their fixes for Wendy was to make her um, a fighter and... She can now swashbuckle and she kicks ass with the pirates. And she's supposed to be this Victorian uh, girl. She talks back to her parents. She fights with her brother and, um, you know, gets mad that she can't do the things that boys can do. And she's really insufferable. And um, she goes to the Lost World. I mean, the Lost Boy World, on Neverland. And there's a bunch of um, girls that are Lost Boys, too. And she's like... Uh, you guys are lost boys? And they're like, what of it, governor? You know, they're all like sassy and, you know, like, we're, we're the lost boys. But uh, when you when you read the original um, Peter Barry book, um, the lost boys were dumbasses. Like, uh, basically, they were stuck in an infantilized uh, existence. And it wasn't cool to be Peter Pan. He was actually kind of a mean dude. He was uh, kind of a jerk and he had a very dark side to him. And he, um, it was presented as harmful that he was stuck in that, constant stage and it was very there's a very very dark uh 
message there. And what Wendy does is she rescues them. She tells them you can't be kids forever. You have to grow out of this. She's kind of like um, the main force that brings all the boys back home. And they leave Peter there and he's kind of very tragic. Like they all grow up and he's never moved on. He's still doing the same thing. He doesn't remember who anybody is. But on, on top of that, even a more uh, simple way, um, the Lost Boys, the reason why the Lost Boys were all male was because boys were the only ones stupid enough to get lost. Uh, that was in the text. Like, they don't... Uh, that the women... That the girl children were matured faster than the boy children. So uh, the Lost Boys were the babies that fell out of their strollers and just crawled away like dumbasses and everything. So you're not actually making the woman the women better by saying, yeah, this woman's as stunted as, as the boys. You know, she wants to stay there and be stunted too. You know what I mean? And... Um, Saying that this female lost boys, I mean, in a way, I guess it is kind of feminist as, say, as in saying um, women can be toxic or stunted too. But that wasn't what the makers meant. You know what I mean? They, yeah. They didn't want to. They didn't want to say that. That wasn't what they were trying to uh, do. Yeah. The the last couple of years have have seen the this resurgence in um, women retelling men's stories. Um, we went through this in like the '90s with you know the. Ahab's wife, the retelling of Moby Dick and, you know, the feminist uh, fairy tales and all these sorts of things. And we've decided to do this again for some reason. Um, and we had like two retellings of 1984 from the perspective of Julia. Uh, there's another Moby Dick retelling. Um, wow. Just like a, like a ton of them. There's a new... Um, Lolita retold uh, from the woman's perspective, the girl's perspective, whatever. Um, and none of them complicate the stories, right? None of them add dimension. They take it away. So there's, it's this kind of weird cultural robbery that's happening. You know, it's as if we all decided that it's impossible to have imagination or to fill in gaps. It's impossible for a, a female child to read a classical work by, you know, Charles Dickens or, you know, even Homer or whatever, and understand that these are the gaps that he couldn't fill that I might have to with my imagination. Instead, it just turns it into the most ridiculous, um, the most predictable version of the story. Like both the 1984 retellings, you know, um, in in one of them, you know, the woman was a freedom fighter, like a terrorist, and you know, bringing down the patriarchy from the inside because the bad guy was her dad and all this kind of stuff. And it was just like really, really silly. Um, and in the other, it was just like, it was a lot of the same. It was just wanting her to be super sexy, um, wanting her to be more alive um, in a sexual manner. And it's so flat. There's no dimension to any of this. And it just feels like, why are we doing any of this? Wait, are you saying you wanted the characters to have just like a more more libido or something? Or are you saying that's what those creators were trying to do with their characters? No, that's what the that's what the the writer did. One made him oh. a terrorist, um, freedom fighter, badass, um, and the other one made her super sexy. Oh, okay. Wow, that's interesting. <laughs> um, you know, one thing I find so interesting about, uh, and this is not just a problem with um, marginalized people type fiction, but I mean, 
even a typical white guy stories, this is a weird trend. They want to retell stuff and make prequels and stuff that fits within the gaps of existing stories, but they fill in the gaps on the most pointless stuff. Like, for example, um, I saw this ad for this new Dracula movie. And Dracula, um, there's a ship called the Demeter or the Demeter, however you pronounce mm -hmm. it. And yeah. it's the ship that... Um, in the novel, they defined everybody slaughtered on, and it was carrying Dracula's um, court, um, body. And he woke up on the flight, and he um, killed everybody. And then they made a, a movie all about the ship ride. It just came out uh, where he, you know, wakes up and it's basically a slash movie. He kills him one by one. And I heard it was okay. I'm not saying it's a bad movie. Maybe it's okay, but it just felt like kind of a wasted opportunity. Like, like out of all the gaps you could have filled in in Dracula to make it more interesting or fill in something that Bram Stoker missed. Like, I feel like that's one of those things Bram Stoker left out because it just wasn't that important. He didn't, he didn't really care. It wasn't the most consequential thing. You didn't really need to see every last person Dracula um, killed in the background to get the story. So I, I feel like that's, that's one of those problems that's even bigger than um, the so-called woke stuff, for lack of a better, better, better word. Like, it's just that, that, that laziness. Hmm? Go ahead. Do you think maybe the director just wanted to make a slasher movie, but he needed like a he property? Couldn't? Yeah, so he just crams that in, which is why yeah, for sure. we have this phenomenon of people who hate the franchises that they're supposedly adapting or expanding. And I mean, it really does look like just spite that they're doing it, where it's like, uh, I actually want this to kind of ridicule the source material because I, I resent having to do this because if it were up to me, I would, it would all just be, they're probably telling some version of themselves and there's like, a term there's a term in psychology called uh, hostile dependency and hostile dependency is when you're in this weird dysfunctional relationship with somebody it doesn't even have to be like a partner it could be parents job whatever where you depend on the person but you resent that you depend on the person um so you act out in all these little little ways and i feel like these people have a hostile dependency on the ips as in um either the market's not good enough or i'm not good enough to sell the story that i want to Sell. So I've got to use this IP and I'm bitter about it. So I'm going to take it out on the IP in all these little passive aggressive ways. I feel like uh, their relationship to the IP, these kind of uh, butcherers or remixers is, is a hostile dependency. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think I understand the impulse within feminism of, you know, you're a kid and you read this book and it says that you're a stupid slut or something or it says that you're a moron or whatever it is. Um, and then you get fixated on, no, I'm not. But then you go, you're supposed to, you're supposed to grow out of that. You're not supposed to 30 years later still be, you know, George Orwell, fuck George Orwell. I, I, yeah, it just seems so childish is the, just the thing I just keep coming back to yeah. because it is the hostile dependency that you have when you're a toddler on your parents and they're yeah. not giving you the toy that you want or whatever to just bring it back to to um to the front of your brain just to feed on that resentment it, to the point of writing a shitty book just to tell dead George Orwell that you're mad at him or whatever just hold a seance say it to his face like just why are you involving any of us? In <laughs> and and the, the funny thing is, at the end of the day, too, when you do that as opposed to creating your own thing, you're really keeping the, the original thing alive in a way. You're not really yeah. taking it down. You're keeping it in the cultural conversation and keeping it important. And I feel like that's why a lot of 
people don't get upset about it. Like, like people are like, oh, how did Greta Gerwig get away with that with Barbie? And it's like, well, because by doing this fake critique of it, she's made it more of a household uh, conversation than it's been in years. Uh, same with um, like things like Hamilton. Like you look at something like Hamilton. A lot of people are acting like this is subverting something or giving a, a finger to white people and like, oh, we're part of history and whatever. But you got to ask yourself, why does Mike Pence want to go? You know, and yeah. it's because um, by using the the black, brown and yellow people to tell this story, you're able to um, like it's kind of uncool to celebrate uh, white people these days. I, I sent you guys this uh, image of the uh, this guy from uh, Iran, this, this Iranian cleric. <laughs> it was it was mocking uh, the U.S. because uh, he was saying Tehran can't strike back at targets of uh, Soleimani's stature because America only has fictional heroes. And he goes, are we supposed to take out Spider-Man and SpongeBob? Like He'd be saying uh, America has no heroes. I think it's because all the cancellations, all the waking up to why wow, these people own slaves, these people did this and that. It's not very cool to just be like, hey, I want to do a George Washington was awesome movie, you know, and and. People will be like, why are we celebrating this? We can't celebrate Columbus or all these people. So they've had this new thing. We're going to use uh, marginalized groups to kind of be a Trojan horse so we can, like, you know, celebrate ourselves. And these people can't get mad at us because uh, we put their bodies, we put it into uh, their bodies. And to a degree, I feel Barbie does that because um, the way Barbie world was so multicultural and they treat Margot, Rob Margot Robbie Bobby Barbie as if her whiteness, her blondness, and her conventional attractiveness is just incidental. Like she's just one of many Barbies. But it's like, mm -hmm. no, that white, blonde, conventionally attractive, small-waisted Barbie is Barbie. Like, stop trying to tell me she's just one Barbie or she's an outdated Barbie. Like, even all the other diverse Barbies, you have, like, say, uh, President Barbie, who is... Um, you know, Issa Rae, and she's black and fabulous and black girl magic or whatever. But if you look up the dolls versions of all those things, President Barbie is Margot Robbie, Barbie in the, in the toy. You know, if, if you find the President Barbie toy, she's white and blonde. It looks like Margot Robbie. If you find the uh, Dr. Barbie, she's white and blonde. looks like Barbie. And uh, I think they're doing the same thing like they did with Hamilton. Like they're trying to pretend this is not celebrating white women. Like, hey, Barbie celebrates everybody. This is a everybody icon. Look, uh... The dumbest Barbie is the white one. She's just uh, the stereotypical Barbie, you know, uh, even though that sometimes they, they give the game away by calling her Barbie Barbie, which I was surprised mm -hmm. they let that slip through. Like they kind of did a little slip where they admit that, no, she's not just one type of Barbie. She is the Barbie and everything. But I just found it very uh, patronizing to to do that. And what's funny is the way they really give it away is um, the Latina woman in the movie um, gets nominated for an Oscar and they don't care. And that really shows it was never about these other window dressing women. This really was. Just like Hamilton is really about white men. Barbie is really about white women, but they just can't admit because it's not cool in the Karen era, in the whole white women feminist or bad era. Like, you know, like your feminist always has to be intersectional, you know? And uh, that's what I really like about that Greta Gerwig and uh, Margot Robbie didn't get nominated for the glamorous roles that people want. Like, like Margot Robbie got nominated for, and you brought this up in your podcast, which I thought was great. Margot Robbie got nominated for producer, but they don't care about that because that's not like being Cinderella or the princess at the ball. Like mm -hmm. they, they wanted to be there for acting. And I, by not being nominated, they really kind of showed their ass as in, this was our movie. You know, we don't care that the uh, Latina girl got nominated. And she got nominated for that speech that's supposed to be so great, but that speech is really supposed to be delivered on behalf of white women. You know, she was just uh, the vessel. That's the same way the Hamilton actors are the vessel for 
found this chic. Also, the argument that they don't care about that because it's only Best Supporting Actress doesn't care because they really cared that Ryan Gosling got nominated for Best Actor. They acted like he got nominated for Best Actress, for God's sake, how they got mad for it. And yeah, you, you just look at the, like, what do these people represent? Um, I think Margot Robbie is an interesting, uh, like, avatar for them because I think probably back in, like, her Wolf of Wall Street days, she would have been the, she would have been, like, the the alpha cheerleader type. But now she's a bit older and she I think she straddles perfectly that line between she's like beautiful and glamorous enough to be aspirational. But she is also she does represent some form of like a somewhat marginalized identity as I don't know how old she is. So I think she's in her mid 30s. Right. Uh, so, I, think she, I think she's younger than that. I think. Uh, well, she's definitely over 30. Right. I think so. I, I know yeah. she I know she looks I'm not saying this to be uh, insulting because she's a beautiful woman, but uh, I think she looks older than she is. Because I remember when I found that. Oh, she's 33. OK, so it is it is. um. Like there is something kind of, as I said, outsidery about her, and so they, you know they're able to project themselves onto her. And obviously, Greta Gerwig is like like the quirky girl that they probably all feel themselves to be. Ryan Gosling is either like their ex boyfriend who was bad to them, or some douche back at you know in the workplace or in a class that they didn't like. And America Ferrera just like doesn't register at all as any I, kind I, of relevance. I, I, to, I think she's know. supposed to be what minority women have always been in these type of. Uh, white woman-centric movies, which is like the the bestie or the sidekick. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, so so I think she was kind of supposed to be be that. But uh, she ended up being the only uh, woman to get an acting nomination from it. So it kind of ruined, ruined it for them. Yeah, but Best Actress every year is just getting to be like the most irritating thing. I mean, last year we saw it with the whole, uh, what's her name? Uh, Kate Blanchett and Michelle Yeoh thing. I'm sure this year if um, Lily Gladstone doesn't win, a lot of people will get mad if like say emma stone wins over her uh so just meanwhile like best actor nobody cares <laughs> yeah Listen, I, I am okay. still very resentful that emma stone won over uh isabella huper like i am still i'm still deeply oh, was angry this, was it back in 17 2017 yeah, La La Land over L. Yeah, fuck, fuck our culture. Yeah, <laughs> I, I never, I, I never saw, I never saw L. But you know, oh man, when... we should see it together. Okay, oh, okay. T, T, uh, Isabel Hopper, the piano teacher, the movie we saw last week. Oh, she, oh, her, she was great. Oh my god, uh, Emma Stone. I didn't even have to see the movie to know that Emma Stone shouldn't have beat her. Uh, not even <laughs> tell me who she is. Oh yeah, even without seeing the movie, I, I can. Wow, do you know how rich Emma Stone is before? In, you know, in her family, is like filthy rich, right? She's one of one of many. Uh, oh, really? the rich, what, what, what does her what her parents do? I forget, but they have a. It's her, her father. They have a lot of money. She's one of those uh, many little towns like Benedict Cumberbatch. That's like, uh, let me just slum and you know do this cool acting thing. Uh, yeah, she's she is from uh, a lot of a lot of money. Like she does not need to be. Uh, she does not need to be act, acting. I, I forget exactly what her dad dad did but but basically her dad was able to basically subsidize her chasing uh acting from what i understand um but anyway whatever i um i have a theory about the stunted men and women thing Mm -hmm. Uh, um i was looking at a a picture of old high school uh for like the 60s and i was looking at it i was noticing the women were wearing uh dresses and shoes and they just looked very much like what um women my my mother's uh, age when I was growing up looked like 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 what I think of as like a adult woman of the like 
60s, 70s, 80s, you know, like like they had a certain look and the guys had button shirts and half of them had slacks. Some of them had jeans and people, the people wearing dress pants to high school and shoes. And some people had sneakers, you know, but um, you kind of look and I kind of think we can't really say we're more stunted than um, generations of the past because I think they were a different type of young person. Like they had more maturity. They had more um, expectations. Like, you know, you still had to like be presentable dressed up to go places yeah chores uh like like people will say oh you know look at these grown men they uh are obsessed with comic book movies and they're obsessed with video game movies but like people my father's age uh they didn't have that type of childhood like their childhood was they had to start working they had responsibilities they uh you know had to start helping around the house with you know, chores and stuff like they weren't sitting around playing video games all day. So they couldn't become an adult that did that. Like, I think adults are actually um, just slightly more mature versions of who they were as kids. And I think this um, eternal girlhood or this, um, you know, man child is more a commentary of how children were different. Like, like we were raised in a different way. Like, like I collect the comic books and I map the relationships of all the people, I collected the comic books. I knew the backstories of all the characters and a million pieces of trivia. Like my dad grew up poor. He had no time or desire to get a hobby like that. You know, there was no baseball card collecting. There was no type of... Um, and and the people who did collect comic books, the, the, the kids who collected comic books, say, in the 40s or the 50s, it was just disposable trash. They bought it. They read it. They didn't memorize all the minutia and trivia of the Superman comic. They... Uh, Threw out the, they threw out the comic book or they put it in the spokes of their bicycle to make a motorcycle noise. And, you know, they aged out of it by the time they were like 10 or 12. So it's like, um, I'm not sure if it's so much that we're stuck in eternal childhood or we're just producing a different type of childhood that in turn is leading to a different... Because children are so consumerist now in a way that yeah. they never were. They, they have their own commercials. Saturday morning cartoons really changed the game. You know what I mean? Yeah, I, I actually have a different theory about why everyone is stunted in child into childhood forever. And I think it's a sort of change over from the social role to the um the notion of authenticity. Like the the idea of the past was that all of these institutions of schooling and work and, and church and so on helped shape you into um someone who could contribute to society and be uh, a husband or a wife or mother, father, whatever. And now we don't have that in the same way. Instead, we have these institutions that are telling us that what's important is to develop our own sense of authenticity. What do we want? Who are we really as people? It's the sort of like dominance of the psychological self and it stunts you because it's not about development. It's not about um, aspiration even in the same way that it used to be. Yeah. Aspiration is now just, I want to afford the life that I want. It's not, I aspire to be important in this way or to contribute in this way. It's, I, I aspire to have enough money to go to this you know this resort in Italy that I saw on Instagram and blah, blah, blah. I so, think... It's very, yeah, it's very, you get stuck once you start thinking, who am I really, like at 14 years old? Like, that's just who you are. 
Yeah, but, but I think in a way you're actually saying something similar, but from a different angle. Yeah, that's, yeah. That's still that's still your childhood. Like you were raised in institutions, so you had to think of things bigger than yourself. Mm-hmm. In a way that I think kids nowadays they don't really have to. They're left alone. Both the parents work, and they just are there with their things, their toys. They watch TV by themselves. And and you're right. Like I had to be involved in church growing up and doing stuff like that. And yeah, these kids don't really have to have to do that. So yeah, I do I do agree with you. Uh totally. I just don't think like we're that far apart. I think we're kind of coming from different directions. But I, I do totally yeah. agree with you. And I think a lot of it has to do with like, you know, the consumerism part because so much of it is like who's your authentic self is so much of like, what do you like? What do you want? What do you want to buy? Um it's not about you know, which romantic poet really speaks to your heart. It's, you know, which breakfast cereal really, you know, represents you as a human being. No, totally. I remember reading an article last year and it was talking about, I never really realized how recent it was, but it was saying how the idea of kids as a actual consumer group is relatively new. And when they realize like, hey, kids have their own things and they have their their allowances, but they also have access to the parents and they can badger the parents to buy stuff. And the whole Saturday morning thing was kind of created as, you know, a way, once they realize like uh, kids are a viable um, marketing thing, the whole Saturday morning complex, the breakfast cereal complex was all about like, let's start bombarding kids with their own commercials, their own um, conspicuous consumption things. And uh, so that we're more groomed to be consumers than I think any other past uh, generations like like from young we have our favorite cereals there's the characters there's uh you know baseball cards co- uh, comics and Saturday morning cartoons have all these ads geared toward kids it's uh I mean my whole childhood of cartoons was uh toy commercials where I look back G.I. Joe Transformers like even the shows were, com- were commercials so we, yeah. we, didn't re- we, we didn't really stand a chance yeah right, but I, I used also- to watch a G.I. Joe cartoon yeah Right. But, you know, as you say, this was present in your childhood as well. Like what's really changed is at least back then you still had to badger your parents to drive you to the toy store and all that. I don't I wouldn't be surprised now if they have like credit cards for little kids. There is this whole shift of like, why? Like, why do people want to get older? Like traditionally, why do people want to get older? It's because you think of like the milestones. Obviously, there's things like marriage and and having kids. But let's, you know, go a bit younger. Like, why do you want to turn 21? Why do you want to go to college? Why do you want to go to high school? It's always to be essentially break out of the confinement of childhood where you're invisible. Nobody sees you. Nobody hears you. Nobody, you basically don't matter except to maybe your parents. Uh, So then, you know, every milestone you're, you're moving up, you learn more, you become, you become more relevant in society. Uh, Whereas now it's, especially with like the internet, as soon as you get a smartphone, you have access to all public spaces. Everyone could pay attention to you. Therefore, what is the advantage of getting older except just, well, I, I guess you, you, you know, you get more beautiful, I guess, to a certain point, then it's downhill after a certain point. But besides that, uh, I guess once you get to that point, why not just stay there? There is no advantage to being, you know, 25, 30, 35, you know, God forbid, 65, uh, except you just get, you know, older, uglier, you know, more or less physically able. So I think that is, and if we look at now, especially things like we all work from home now. So the bedroom with your computer is the public sphere. It's no longer, you know, you no longer have to even learn to drive to get out there. Just stay at home and turn on your webcam and you are visible to the world. And the adults don't seem like much of a jump anymore either. Like, you know, when I see things that appear in um, 
the New York Times now, like you know the Taylor Swift thing that that oh, uh, the, the Anna Marks piece. Yeah, and then I looked up Anna Marks, and I think she came up through BuzzFeed, and a lot of her uh, we started calling these people Buzz Teens, like these um, women that are like uh, twenty five to forty, but they still write about Disney princesses and yeah, and and all this stuff. So I'm like, so even as a kid, like, what is your model if you're looking at these these people? They don't really require you to stretch. Uh, to match them. I, th- I think if anything, I've seen a lot of Gen Zers on TikTok actually look down on the millennials for being so childish. Like, uh, like they actually feel like they've surpassed them in maturity to a lot of degrees. I've seen them like complain I, I about... This, hmm? I saw this really funny tweet by um, this person. She was talking about how... This is in China. About how the, the I guess the like early 20-something Gen Z girls is that their biggest enemies are like late 20s, early 30s women who who I guess use makeup and filters to act like them and they talk like them. So they Oh, I just saw that TikTok. So they, they're now developing their own like distinct distinguishing slang to uh differentiate themselves. <laughs> I found that very funny. I do see that coming because it's if you have a bunch of millennials who refuse to grow up and you got Gen Z who want to, you know, have their moment in the sun. And you also have like Gen Alpha coming up not not that far behind. There's gonna be oversaturation of 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 you know the what's like the prime advertising demographics like eighteen to what thirty nine? I think it's eighteen. 30, yeah. Yeah. I, I, so I, if everyone's mentally in that uh, stage, even those who are younger, I mean, we hear about like ten year olds buying uh, anti aging stuff. We've got like forty five year old buzz teens and everything. So we we got way too many in that demographic. They're not all going to be able to be catered to or have jobs that you know they want in that. So uh, it's going to be a bloodbath, I think. I think we're seeing. I think we're seeing that now. I mean, I think these people have grown up as much as any previous generation has grown up. They've just started from such a low point that, that it's a. Uh, they're gonna need to grow three times as much as any previous generation to reach the same level of of maturity. Like the starting point is just so fucked. You know what I'm saying? Like, uh, you know, like people grew up in farms back in the days and had like so many hours of work under the belt before they even <laughs> became became a teenager. They, they were doing, they were productive for something. Like, now you're just someone who takes up space if, if you're young. You just, you, you're just a freeloading tenant until you go to college. That's, that's what you are. You just eat up what's in the house and you uh, play games and hang out with your friends and just, you know, watch TV. So it's, that's all these, these people are good at as adults is watching TV, hanging out with their friends and, you know, um, talking about uh, who can beat who. Can Spider-Man beat the Hulk? Uh, did you get the new Barbie? Like, like that's all they were allowed to be as kids. It's, it's uh, I don't know what the, I don't know what the answer is, but I mean, we see it now with these Disney princess stories. They're, they're, they're awful. I, I, I there was this movie I really like called, uh, called, um, Sweet Smell of Success. Mm-hmm. And I like the movie so much that I got the book and it's a book of short stories and Sweet Smell of Success is one of them, but it's by this guy, Ernest Lehman. And you can tell the guy had an interesting life by what he writes about. So I looked him up and he used to be a press agent um for Hollywood and he hated it and um he took all his stories that he saw and the type of people he met being a press agent and and he made his his niche writing about big cities Los Angeles LA and he wrote about like sleazy producers um casting couches a lot of unsavory things I think he couldn't write the kind of things he wrote uh today because um it wasn't always politically correct it wasn't offensive he didn't do anything especially racist or sexist but he would like you know have like say a woman um use a guy for something 
to get to get rich and then discard him. And it was done like a very realistic way. But um, by today's standards, they would say, oh, that's a sexist depiction. But what he was just was trying to show to me was these are the kind of things that happen in a world as fucked up as Hollywood, where everything is transactional and everyone's trying to get over on people. But it's like, who gets to write a book now? It's somebody who was just a good student their whole life. They were the kid that never gave their parents problems. They had their eyes in the Ivy League or good schools very early. So they never did anything wrong. They managed to get to the Iowa program or uh, the Yale drama program or the Harvard program. All their childhood was spent trying to do that and learning how to please gatekeepers and and adults. Then they get their uh, book and movie rights options before they even finish the first book while they're still in the Iowa program. And then like, you know, the book is hitting the stands or whatever, or their first movie or play is, you know, in the case of say someone like like the slave play guy from Yale, um, things are so like fast tracked now. And the people are so funneled into these careers and lives. So, so young. It's like when you finally do read what they've written, like, like, like these, these people can't human well, like none of these characters feel like a human being. And it's not totally your fault because you didn't have you never you never had like one or two failed careers before you did this. You never had a really weird, messed up uh, life. I think that's one of the, one of the reasons why identity has become so big because it's like I can just create a shorthand for a interesting or a hard life. Like uh, I was born black, or I was born a woman, or whatever. Uh, I'm a marginalized group. That's my interestingness. That's my character. You know what I mean? And that's not really enough. Like, like half the population is women, like black people around the world. There's a lot of them, you know, maybe in the 13% of America, but it's not like, it's not enough, at least not for the amount of people we're producing in, in the arts. Yeah. There's this, this weird trend in, um, women's writing right now, which is the, um, like magical girl space where every book now is set in some slightly not full on magical realism because that would be hard but just like <laughs> a um like a a, a a village where everyone falls mysteriously ill or in America that is undergoing a si- second civil war and blah 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 like they can't it's like they can't even see reality um, and the world doesn't operate for them like it does for um, normal people. And so this is kind of the only thing that they can do Mm. is the sort of like light, magical, the laws of physics don't totally um, run normally. You know, plagues are always happening far off wars are always happening. We're always like delving into some sort of medieval era or whatever. And it's really um, just about confusion and neurosis. It's not about anything else. It's not about the world. It's not about society. It's just uh, interiority and... and but, not, but not even good interiority. A very no. bland, uninteresting are- interiority. Yeah, I'm so YA, soft. I'm so sad. Um, are these YA books or like no? The these YA are books these or? are these are adult books, quote unquote are, adult books. They, this is like Catherine adult, Lacey. This are they is adult YA. I, I, I call, this is this is genre of book. I started calling adult YA, where people give me a book and technically it's for adults because there's like sex in it, but it's basically YA. It's just YA with well, I cursing. mean everything is everything is YA these days, yeah. so but, it's hard to like. 
if wait, just I think you were naming some authors. Uh, I just want to know. Oh yeah, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, like every Catherine Lacey book, um, the the novel Cursed Bread, which won some awards. Um, Interesting. Yeah, like everything. Is, everything I, is never... based on like the witches. <laughs> like everything is based on like witches or madness. Uh, from the hysterics or something, they could. Yeah, it's just very, it's very I, silly. So. I feel like to a degree, what you're describing overlaps a lot with uh, Barbie, because uh, you know it's in this world. The Barbie world is not a real world, so you're not bound by rules there, right? Uh, but even their internal rules don't make sense. At least yeah. something that's very good. Just now, you said they won't do real magical realism because it's hard. Mm -hmm. And that kept passing through my mind with Barbie. Like, it was afraid of doing anything hard. And, and I'll, I'll, I'll tell you what I mean. Like, there's no... The Barbie world is easy because you get to make this fake world. But she even fails at that. And I'm going to bring up bring up how uh, how she came and stick to her own rules and that. But when it's time to go to the real world, the real world is as or more cartoony than uh, the fake world. So, so you're not even... Like, there was a movie called The Last Action Hero that I feel was the guy's version of uh, the Barbie plot. You know, um, where the Arnold Schwarzenegger from the movie, the action hero, ends up in the real world. They can't figure out how um, the real world works. And um, they were able to make the world of the action movie as ridiculous as it was and cartoony, but also ground the real world into a sense. I mean, it's still a movie, so it's never going to be 100% realistic, but it felt grounded in something. And like the way Greta Gerwig could not, uh, like the way the real world was more cartoony in the Barbie world, but even within the Barbie world, um, Barbie's floating down and doing all these things, and then they spell it out because, of course, they don't trust the audience. They, they, they spell out that a girl is holding Barbie and playing with her and, you know, bringing her down and everything. So it's like, okay, does this mean that Barbies are controlled by little girls? Does it mean that what's coming out of the Barbie's mouths are what the girls are saying? Or to what extent is Barbie sentient versus... Um, a tool of what this outside force, like this little girl is like her God, her machine that is piloting her. But they start wondering, okay, um, who's playing with the Kens? Are these little girls saying beat you off? Like they're not going to make those kind of jokes. <laughs> There's all these weirdly adult jokes. So I'm like, what are the rules here? Um, when is this talking to themselves and when are they doing what the kids are telling them to do? And if so, what they're saying makes no sense. How would kids even know that? Why are the kids talking about death? You know, but then you find out that was her mother. So playing, which is a whole other topic um, that the mother chooses to play with Barbie to deal with her parenting problems and actually talk to the kid. Um, but anyway, there's this thing they keep doing in the movie that drives me crazy in movies where, um, and it goes back to, we said, because it's hard, they don't want to do it and it's lazy. Where you see a problem in your movie and you could just figure out how to solve the problem, but your solution instead is to just point out the problem in the text and have the characters laugh at it and wink at the audience. And then that takes you off the hook of having to actually write something better because it's like, hey, this is bad, but hey, I know it's bad. Wink, wink. You know, so there's all these little things where the guy actually verbalizes the questions I was thinking. The the, the intern is like, so, so guys, how did Barbie Land get made? Is it an alternate universe? Is it a this? Is it that? And they're like, uh, yeah, don't think about it too hard. And then they uh, go. Barbie asks Weird Barbie, Kate McKinnon, something about a bunch of plot holes that make no sense. And then Kate McKinnon's like, oh, don't think about it too hard. I counted about four times where they just point out something stupid that makes no sense. And they just have a character hand wave it and laugh it away. And somehow that's supposed to be smart satire. Like, we know 
Uh, another example, I don't know if this was from the draft when, what's her name, Amy Schumer was involved or something, but they had a line in there where, Bar- where Margaret Robbie talks about how she's not pretty, even mm-hmm. if it's just stereotypical Barbie. And to me, the fact that it got so far into being filmed and everything, I think that they were just not smart enough to realize how stupid it sounded. I think maybe it tested badly and people laughed. And I'm convinced they put the Helen Mirren part as an afterthought. Like, note to the producers or makers of this, if you want to have this speech... Margot Robbie is the wrong one to cast. And it's like, why leave it in there then? Just take just take it out. You know, either write a better speech or cast somebody else or take it out. But yeah, this is, I think that kind of ties into the eternal child theory. Like this kind of laziness. I'm just going to cover up my mistake and hope nobody notices. I guess they could have worked around that. If, as you said, it really was a little girl playing with it. So it's not supposed to make sense. Which, which is, I, I think, what they did with the Lego movie where... It, it yeah it like was it, it it was you know like they just built spaceships out of nothing and stuff but it's it makes sense because that's what you do with Legos but then if you have a little girl playing with it then it just it, it, it's a little weird because then all the the kind of more political messaging wouldn't make sense like why would a little girl be the, the political this? messaging the sexual innuendo all that stuff wouldn't make sense like I, I feel like Lego had more of an internal logic to it that this thing just had no interest in having and I, I just could when I was watching it. I didn't even really care so much about the about the bad feminism because I was so struck by just what a bad basic film it was. It just was not. It was like I think like they had a first draft and like uh, second drafts for losers. Just work with it. We'll we'll plow through it. It, it was just weird to me. But um, I want to. I feel like this is a good time. Well, first off, uh, Justin, do you have any parting uh, thoughts about uh, the Barbie movie and the um, anything related to your podcast episode about it that you want to expand on or no. <laughs> I'm a little I feel a little tapped out tapped out on Barbie yeah um, yeah yeah um one thing I will say and this is not a Barbie thing but it relates to Barbie but it's about things in in general that I think we can use to segue into uh this musical chairs existence that's happening for uh, writers and media people but especially for um the the marginalized groups of writers who have been kind of eating okay for a couple of years. They had a couple of years that were kind of plum, and I think people thought they were going to last forever, and they didn't really make a plan B. They just thought, I could just think peace my way uh, to retirement. Um, but there's this kind of self-erasing uh, history that happens where you just kind of make yourself a fake underdog all the time. So it's like, there was a movie called American Fiction, and I'm sure you've probably heard about it. It's nominated for an Oscar. Were you able to see it at all? Yes. Oh, you saw it? Okay. Yeah. Um. I read the book in preparation to watch the movie. And I think I would have hated the movie anyway. But <laughs> but why, re- reading the book, then watching the movie, it was another example of, this is hard. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to film that. This is hard. I'm not going to film that. Even things like um, the sister dies from being shot by um, an anti-abortion person. And that could have easily been left in. But I feel like Court Jefferson was like, oh, it's going to be a lot of icky emotions. And uh, I'll just have her die from some undisclosed kind of heart attack type of thing. Uh, like, there's a fear of dealing with anything difficult or hard. But what I, but I was really fascinated. And I feel like it ties into Barbie too. Like, you have to keep erasing past progress or whatever. You got to act like women never made a movie before. Yeah. So that you have a low bar that's easy for you to meet. Um, instead of actually trying to top what happened in the past. Like, topping what happened in the past is too hard. So I'm just going to act like the last 10, 20, 30 years of accomplishments by women or Black people or Asian people or Latino people just didn't happen. And I'm just going to redo landmarks that already happened. So this movie's pretending... uh, Chris, you didn't see the movie, right? I know the premise, though. Okay. So this movie's pretending that the main type of Black movie that exists now 
are gangster movies and hood movies and precious tech movies and um, all this stuff. And he's in a hotel room and it's supposed to take place in the, in the present day. But somehow all the black movies that are coming on are from 10 to 20 years ago. And he has to do that because if he's honest, he's going to have to admit that he's not the underdog. Like this is fake underdog thing, right? Like Core Jefferson, he's winning. The movies that he makes are winning. And those type of movies are things about middle-class black people and upper-middle-class black people and rich black people and their foibles navigating the workplace, navigating living in white and working in white spaces. Like basically movies like American fiction. Like he has to pretend that the only type of movie being made now is slave movies and gangster movies so that he can pretend that his type of movie, which is actually the real dominant type of movie, he's not an underdog, he's actually what should be getting skewered. Um, his movie is the kind of movie that white liberals are, are going gaga over. Um, he can't indict what's actually the most dominant type of black movie now because he's going to have to indict himself. So he adapts a book that was written in 2001 that was current when it was being written. Like when the novel was being written, that actually was a dominant type of movie, that type of um, uh, insulting ghetto, uh, we lives in the ghetto type book. That actually was a thing, but um, his class won. Those are the black creators that won, but they have too thin a skin to indict themselves. So this is going to relitigate won battles, but also by pretending that they're losing, they get the green light and the license to overproduce even more, you know, because, um, you know, people were saying, oh, this movie was so good because it, um, we need more movies like that. I'm like, that's the only kind of movie we get, like uh, more movies like this as opposed to what? And uh, anyway, yeah. yeah I, I mean, this is not, sorry, not to good. retread back into to Barbie <laughs> land, but um, this is kind of the offensiveness of the idea that Greta Gerwig is here to speak for all women. Margot Robbie is here to to represent all women um, because it, you know, are we just going to forget all of the great women directors who have come before and who made much better films under much worse conditions? And that's the part of it that I don't understand, this sort of um, disconnection from the past, from women who uh, are just vastly superior to Greta Gerwig and and Taylor Swift and all these other sort of like tiny little blonde girls that we that we are pretending like are geniuses these days. Like it really it's really so such a shallow engagement with the world. And I don't I don't really understand why, you know, even culture critics sort of play into this and and cause this sort of um a historical view of of art by people who weren't straight white men. You don't even have to compare Greta Gerwig to another female director for Breaking Bears. You just have to compare it to herself. Like she got nominated for Lady Bird, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, three of her her first three movies all got nominated for Best Picture, which is an insane track record. Yeah. For, uh, how many for, how for many, rookie? How many Best Director nominations has she gotten? Two, sure. right? Didn't she get one? She got, she got one for Little already? Women. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like, she, like she already broke the barrier herself in the last five years for, and you can't even say those movies were not very feminine. They were all about, just as you said in your podcast, all about girls. And yeah, it's just, I guess. Um, and there was a woman nominated for Best Director this year. It just wasn't Greta Gerwig. And yeah. so it's really strange how limited our um, identification 
wants to be. Like we so, want Greta Gerwig to represent us because it's so flattering for Greta Gerwig because she's an idiot operating a camera and I'm an idiot. So I can, you know, I can also be best director or whatever, but it's really not, we're not looking at this as what can we achieve? We're looking at this as like, oh, I can see myself being Greta Gerwig because she's so disappointing and so mediocre. And so she's my avatar for Hollywood. I was also going to say, maybe it's because so many men got mad at Barbie, supposedly. But isn't Anatomy of a Fall about... just Ben Shapiro? Did it happen? Yeah, did the backlash yeah. happen? I, I mean, I, th I think it was overblown by the anti-woke YouTubers who need to, you know, eat their bread as well. But also, isn't Anatomy of a Fall about a woman who murders her husband? Uh, you don't know. Maybe, maybe. Well, maybe, but maybe it's not. about a trial, right? About <laughs> yeah, a, a it's legit... a trial of a woman who's on right, trial so for murder. Things that again, yeah, that's aspirational, even... man. <laughs> <laughs> I can't even say. Oh, it's she only got nominated because it was not about a woman or not about a woman's, uh, you know, concerns. It, it was about a man. No, it was about a woman who kills her husband. So. At the at the end of the day, Barbie was uh, Black Panther for white women. Uh, for, for, <laughs> and, and, and I think uh, they just. You know, uh, Barbie Land was their Wakanda. I mean, it totally tracks. I'm not even going to take credit for that. Uh, I saw that, like, on TikTok. And someone laid out the parallels. In fact, let me see something. Hold on. Well, I hope, hopefully it doesn't mean Margot Robbie's going to have an untimely death. I yeah, hope not. Yeah. Let's, let's see. At first I thought this was a reach, but he made a good point. But Killmonger didn't give up of his own accord. Didn't he get defeated in battle? But he, he did, but he did kind of uh, relinquish. Like, like I he didn't... Because he's about to die. Yeah, but I mean, they can't have him actually can actually die. But I do, I do think that, that would have been cool. If yeah, yeah. If, <laughs> I do like the I do like the idea of, of of Ken Killmonger though. That that's that's something about Ken being Killmonger. But yeah, I mean, but then the problem was Killmonger was the coolest part of Black Panther. I mean, Ken, Ken, then, Ken yeah. was the coolest part of Barbie. Yeah. You know, right, right. Yeah. But imagine like he was like a, a murderous, violent psychopath, <laughs> and then that made him popular. That would have been no good. Yeah. Yeah, but uh, and we saw how passionate people were about uh, Wakanda. Like, I feel like there's a certain class of black person that still can't get past the fact that that, that movie is not real. They still really want to believe Wakanda is real. And I feel like yeah, Barbie Land is a, is is white woman Wakanda. And uh, the only difference is I don't think black people really expected Black Panther to get an Oscar. Like, uh, but I think we're too, we're too used to not getting what we want. Like, like whatever the audacity <laughs> to, to, to hope for that. All right, y'all. So. That is the end of part one. Go to, again, patreon.com forward slash champagne sharks or click the link in the show notes to get part two. Be good.